The subject of the talk this evening is joy and happiness. The, um, this is not science fiction. <laughs> the vocabulary of the Buddhist teachings, as you know, revolves a lot around this word dukkha. This is the pleasure of being in a Theravadan center. But the Four Noble Truths could just as well have been expressed in terms of happiness. You know, the Buddha could have said, there is unhappiness, the cause of unhappiness is wanting, real happiness is possible, and the way to real happiness is the Eightfold Path. So I want to suggest that joy and happiness are a very essential part of our path. Despite the talk of dukkha, these elements are really essential as we progress and develop on the path. Don't worry if you're not completely there today in your practice. These are elements that take a while to mature. It was a little like Bhante's talk on Nibbana the third noble truth, we may not have full realization today, but it's helpful to know that's where this is all headed. That's where we're going. Because as Yogi Berra said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll wind up somewhere else. So we want to be sure where we wind up. It's very helpful to start to notice these qualities when they come in and then to cultivate them as a conscious part of our path. Of practice. In the overall scheme of the Buddha's teachings, the cultivation of joy and happiness certainly fall into the four right efforts that Winnie talked about early on in the retreat. In two of the right efforts, the instructions are to maintain and increase wholesome states of mind. And joy and happiness are certainly in that territory. I think there is a deep longing for these states, among meditators, among the world in general. One of our uh, friends and colleagues in California is James Barraz, who many of you know wrote a book called Awakening Joy. The book got a promotion uh, from Oprah Winfrey's magazine, O, and in the six-month period after it was mentioned in O, the attendance at James's class, both in person and online, went to 2,900 people around the world who were interested in developing joy as part of their meditation practice. So we want to develop the ability to see joy when it comes just as easily as we can see difficulties, the hindrances, the afflictive emotions, and so on. Sometimes if we're uh, early in our phase of practice or we're struggling with the hindrances in particular, the mind is almost looking out for them and more apt to notice them. And these quiet moments of happiness or joy or peace can slide by unnoticed. But we want to develop a kind of mindfulness that isn't biased either toward the afflictive nor toward the uplifting, but that really can see exactly what's happening in either way. So in that, the mind really, as it comes to completeness, needs to see 
the joy as easily as it sees the difficulty. And when we start to open up to this, this attention on the positive starts to redress an imbalance in the mind because so often the mind inclines to what's wrong or what's lacking. The the bent of the mind shaped by craving inclines to see what's lacking or what's off and it doesn't take into account often the positive states that are there. So we need to give equal weight to seeing the wholesome. As the Buddha said, what one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. There are many words in the Pali, in the Buddha's teachings, that point to this whole range of beautiful qualities of mind. I'll just mention um, some of the ones I'm familiar with, and there may be others. There's the term mudita, empathetic joy, which Winnie gave a whole talk about a couple of weeks ago. The term sukha, which I would translate as happiness. I probably will translate this evening as happiness. Uh, it, it sounds a little bit like um, sugar. So it has this sukha has this sweet quality in the mind, just like sugar does, that sukha. Ananda uh, means bliss. It was frequently used in Buddhist names. Of course, you know the Buddha's attendant was Ananda. My, priest, my first preceptor in Thailand was called Panyananda, which is the bliss of wisdom. And when I took a monk's name, the next time I ordained, I asked to call myself Sunyatananda, and my preceptor agreed, which means the bliss of emptiness. So you see this in a lot of uh, Buddhist names. It's very common, bliss. PT, which we talked about in the seven factors, usually translated as rapture. Pamoja um, could well be translated as joy. It might be the best word to translate as joy, and I think Bhante mentioned this in one of his talks. Somanasa, which I would translate as gladness of mind. And santuti, I like that word. Santuti, it sounds like it comes from an Italian gelato factory. (laughs) And that means contentment. So all these words are part of the Buddhist teachings, part of the development of the path. They're particularly emphasized in one sutta in the Samyutta Nikaya called uh, the Upanisa Sutta, sometimes called the Sutta on Transcendent Dependent Origination. But don't worry so much about the long formal title. This sutta describes the unfolding of the path as an unfolding of joy. Beginning with suffering, leading to faith, and then uh, joy, and then the joy leading on to states of concentration, insight, and liberation. It's a beautifully positive description of the path to awakening. Venerable Analeo, who will be coming here in March to teach with Joseph, is one of the now foremost uh, Buddhist scholars writing in the English language. He's a, a German monk who ordained in Sri Lanka, has a wonderful book called Satipatthana, which is a long commentary on the Satipatthana Sutta. He's very familiar with the whole range of the Pali uh, suttas. 
He's also learned Chinese in order to be able to study their counterparts in ancient Chinese texts. And a, a wonderful monk and a scholar of really great renown. And he put it this way, the entire scheme of the gradual training can be envisaged as a progressive refinement of joy. The entire scheme of our training is a progressive refinement of joy. That's what we're doing here. Culminating, of course, in liberation, which the Buddha described by saying Nibbana is the highest happiness. Nibbana is the highest happiness. It's from the Dhammapada. It's very, very helpful to be able to not only recognize the quality of joy when we find it, but also to bring it in at times, to have means, to have practices that develop this quality and bring it in at times, especially of difficulty. Because if we know how to do that, this quality of joy can be a tremendous ally on the path. Because let's face it, we all hit times that are difficult and we can use some uplift. So this came really clear to me. I was, um, I was practicing in Burma several years ago. I'd been a monk in Thailand in the 80s and then I went back and ordained again in Burma. Uh, I think it was around 2005. Because I wanted to practice with Pa Oksayada, this concentration master that I've mentioned a few times. He has a monastery in Burma. It's about uh, 200 miles southeast of Rangoon. And I arrived there at the start of the rains retreat, which should have been a clue, but I sort of didn't get it. <laughs> so I got there on one afternoon, and I met with Sayadaw about 5 p.m. and said, I'd like to practice for six weeks, and if you're willing, I'd really like to ordain. And I told him that I'd been a monk before, and so he said, okay, it's okay for you to ordain. So the next morning, I was driven into town. Um, I bought my robes and bowl and belt, you know, the whole gear. And that afternoon, about 1 o'clock, my head was shaved. I went through the ordination ceremony, took the precepts, and I was a monk again. It was very quick. <laughs> Phew. So then the rains retreat opened that night, or that day, we started. And this is a period when, for three months, the monks stay settled in one place because it's the rainy season. And in the olden days, they weren't supposed to walk through the fields and turn up the, the crops that were growing, especially the rice. So I started to practice. And Paok Sayadaw's practice was quite demanding. Uh, I wanted to study concentration with him, so I had one object and one object only, which was the small area underneath my nose where I could feel the breath. That was the only object I was allowed for the six weeks. It wasn't time to investigate interesting sights or sounds, much less the nature of awareness. It was just come back to this point in every sit, in every walk, at every meal for six weeks. So it was a very narrow focus, which itself is a challenge. They weren't kidding about the rains. The <laughs> rains started pretty much the next day and went on uninterrupted for about the next three weeks during which time it rained three inches a day, and I didn't see the sun. I was eating one meal a day at the monastery. Breakfast didn't quite work uh, for my timing because the schedule was pretty full on. So I was eating one meal a day. 
the monastery is vegetarian, which I appreciated because I'm, I'm vegetarian. Um, but there wasn't a lot of protein. So it was basically stir-fried vegetables and white rice. And on that diet, I was losing about half a pound of, a day of weight. And you can tell I don't have a lot to give up in the first place. So I was losing weight steadily. The practice was demanding and the schedule was demanding. The shortest sitting during the day was an hour and a half. And the longest sitting was two hours. So I settled into that schedule, doing the practice, not seeing the sun, losing weight, not having a lot to eat. The bugs in my kuti were amazing. I saw the biggest spider I've ever seen <laughs> right, right outside my window. And I wasn't making like tremendous progress in this practice. <laughs> so after about three weeks, I got quite discouraged. And uh, it's funny now, but, but at the time it wasn't very funny. <laughs> My spirits were, were really sinking really low. And um, fortunately, I brought this um, little piece of art, which I keep on an altar, which is a photograph of the Dalai Lama with some quotes from Shantideva about the Bodhisattva's way of life. So there's this beautiful photograph of His, His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. And I decided um, to ask for some guidance. So I turned to the photo and I said, um, Your Holiness, um, I'm having a really difficult time. I need some counsel. What advice can you offer me? And I really supplicated to uh, His Holiness's image. And quite immediately there came this transmission. It was in his voice, you know, that Indian accented English that he talks in, and it was a very clear message. What the Dalai Lama said was, stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. A positive attitude is the best support. <laughs> and then it finished. Transmission ended. So that was my guidance from this very revered figure. I figured I'd better follow it. So whenever I could, I would remind myself of that advice. Stay cheerful, optimistic, and confident. And sometimes it worked. You know, when I could remember what cheerful felt like. It really worked to uplift, uplift my spirits and let me continue in my retreat. So I've continued to remember that and remind myself of that um, from time to time. When I feel like I need this kind of support or ally in uh, difficult periods, because after all, what's the point of being anything else than cheerful, optimistic, and confident? There's no point. So when I can, I really try to follow this. And the Dalai Lama himself sets this beautiful standard for happiness. He carries on his shoulders the weight of the whole Tibetan nation, which faced the loss of a million of its seven million people during the Cultural Revolution, and in which still monks and nuns are not really free to practice the Dharma the way that they want and being arrested and so on. Nonetheless, he has this amazing joy and happiness that just radiates from him. He was at a gathering of scientists in Dharamsala. He likes to bridge the scientific world and the Buddhist world. 
And over tea, you know, very casual setting, one day one of the scientists asked him, what was the happiest time of your life? And you know, I thought he would say, well, it was in the Potala Palace when I was a young monk and I was studying and we were still to bed and free to practice before we were occupied. He didn't say that. He said, I think right now, <laughs> happiest time of my life. What a beautiful response. So I want to talk about some of the different ways that we can develop this sense of um, joy and happiness in our practice. One of the most powerful is the practice that Winnie talked about, which is mudita, translated as sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. You probably remember this is taking happiness in the happiness of another. And among all the formal Buddhist practices that I know of, it's the most happy and the most upbeat and a very good ally. If you, if you make a good relationship with the person we call the happy person, I think Winnie described it as the one with the smile on their face and can bring them in as an ally, can be really uplifting to have such a person in your life. And then you can just feel that spark sometimes of delight in their happiness. Uh, the phone rang one morning at my house and I, I picked it up and it was a friend I hadn't heard from for a while. And I asked her how she was and she, in a very enthusiastic voice, said, I'm wonderful. And just hearing that, without thinking for a split second, I said back, I'm wonderful too. <laughs> and that was just that hit of mudita. Just her happiness just touch something in me. So there's this standard phrase, may your happiness and good fortune continue. It's a lovely way to tune into the happiness of another. And then we can appreciate this line from Shantideva, the uh, old Indian philosopher. Whatever joy there is in this world, all comes from wanting others to be happy. And whatever suffering there is in this world all comes from wanting only myself to be happy. So this practice of mudita is a really reliable guide to discovering more happiness in, in ourselves. And this came home to me several years ago. Carol and I taught a weekend retreat here on mudita because you know we teach a lot of metta retreats here. But I'd never taught a Mudita retreat or been involved in a Mudita retreat. So we taught a weekend to see how it would go. And I didn't have high expectations. Weekend retreats are kind of the hardest retreats in the world because you start with the opening day and then the next day is the closing day. And you don't get this nice, you know, settled in space in between. So I didn't have high expectations for this retreat. But I was really surprised at how much people got out of it. I remember someone coming up to us at the end and saying, I haven't felt this happy in years. And that was just from two days of doing mudita practice. So I've worked with people in this retreat sometimes who have done as much as 10 days at a stretch of intensive mudita practice. And I've done that myself. And it is a very, very uplifting kind of practice to do. So there are other forms of joy that we can tune into here. Of course, in our outside life, most of us are lay people. 
and um, we have access to different kinds of sense pleasures. So, um, you know, in daily life, as lay people, we, we often will see movies, have the food of our choice, listen to music, enjoy uh, sexual relations with another, enjoy um, art and different kinds of painting and sculpture. And this is a natural part of, of lay life. And all these activities give a certain kind of joy in the moment. There's no um, avoiding that fact if we look closely at the experience. Of course, we're sophisticated meditators and we know that it's only temporary and dependent on conditions, but it is something that uplifts us. And if you think about your lay life without any sense pleasures in it, how would that feel to you? It might feel like the opening day of a retreat here which is a crash course in renunciation and often somewhat difficult. So it's just to notice that we as lay people, the lay people who are here, not the monastic, the lay people who are here, structure their lives so as to have a certain amount of joy from sense pleasures. And that is not against the teachings of the Buddha. In fact, one of the words for householders in the Buddha's language was one who enjoys sense pleasures. That's kind of what we are as lay people. If you want to cut all sense pleasures out of your life, you may as well ordain because there's much more support for the practice of renunciation as a monastic. Here, of course, our access to sense pleasures is, is much more limited, but there are simple pleasures during the day that give you know, these brief moments of kind of delight. You know, I think about getting up and being able to have a hot shower. When I'm sitting in retreat, I love the feeling of that warmth on my body. There's, you've been out walking on an autumn afternoon and it's chilly and you come in and you have a warm cup of tea or a hot bowl of soup and you feel the warmth kind of pervading and it's so delightful. You walk outside and you see the beauty of the autumn leaves, you know, which are still around um, and have been for a couple of weeks. Or how the sky opens up in a morning like today and it's so blue after it's been cloudy for a while. Or, you know, maybe the best moment of the day is at the end of the day, you've done the last sitting with the chanting and you get to go lie down. Isn't that delicious? That feeling of just settling into your bed. The problem is sometimes it doesn't last very long. You know, you go to sleep and then you're up again. But it's pleasant while it's there. And because we get so sensitive in the retreat environment, all these pleasures get heightened in a way that even fine food you know, and fine experiences don't strike so deeply in daily life. And the Buddha put it this way, robes, alms food, a hut, and a straw seat will seem rich and luxurious to one who has renounced. And that's what we enjoy here. Uh, from that sim simplicity of being, the heightening of our senses uh, in the direction of enjoyment. Another great pleasure here for all of us, I think, is the joy of nature. 
And this also uh, really came clear to me when I was practicing in Thailand the first time I was a monk. I had ordained and spent a little bit of time in Bangkok getting my uh, long-term visa and sort of learning the ropes as a bhikkhu. And then I traveled up to the north, a little bit outside of Chiang Mai, and practiced in this fairly uh, remote little monastery um, that was built at the bottom of a river gorge. So it was quite beautiful. One of the things I liked about it is the practice conditions were roughly equal for men and women. So there were monks on one side of the river, nuns on the other side of the river, and the huts were all along the banks, basically, of the river. And there were these you know, high cliffs on either side, just lined, lined with trees. And it was really out in the country. So I had this very sweet little uh, hut, we called a kuti, sitting on the bank of the river. And uh, every morning, you know, the sun would finally come over the cliff and shine down. And uh, the scenery was beautiful. Uh, my hut was quite alone, so it was very quiet, a really good place uh, for meditation. Um, but there were also difficulties there. I didn't really speak Thai, and, my, and the teacher there didn't speak English. So I was there for three months, and I didn't have a single interview or hear a Dharma talk the whole time. This is before the days of MP3 players, so I couldn't smuggle in Dharma seed contraband. So I was really just on my own. Uh, the teacher would occasionally come up to my kuti. I don't know if he was checking to make sure I was okay or what, but he'd look in the window, and I'd, I'd, I'd either be sitting or walking. Honestly, there wasn't much else to do. So he'd look in my window, and he'd see me sitting, um, and he'd just say, D, D, which means good, good in Thai, and that was the transmission, the sort of seal of approval. Or he'd come up and I'd be walking, and for some reason, I was walking on the bare ground, for some reason I was wearing sandals. I can't imagine why. And he would point to my feet and sort of tell me, take off the sandals so I'd walk barefoot, you know, get more sensation, more contact with the ground. So that was about the extent of my instruction for the three months. Um, there wasn't another Western monk there that I could hang out to and talk with, so I really didn't have any conversation for those three months. And so that was challenging. I was really on my own in that, in that setting. But one of the things that sustained me, that kept my spirits up, was the beauty of that nature. The sunshine, the river, the cliffs, the trees. And the most, kind of most striking thing was on my path, the path that I would walk from my kuti to the front of the monastery for my morning meal every day, I would pass this huge old mango tree. And it was mango season. It was the spring. And so the mangoes were ripening on the tree and falling on the ground. And there would just be this delicious, fresh fragrance of ripe mangoes when I would walk by that tree. The only thing that was a little frustrating is I couldn't eat them. As a monk, you can't eat anything that hasn't been put in your hands by someone else. So these mangoes would fall on the ground because they were ripe, and then they would rot, and I would just have to smell them and watch them. <laughs> but even the smell was a delight, I must say. So taking time to appreciate the beauty, as I know you all are doing, I hear it from you in interviews, 
taking the time to appreciate it. This is from Ajahn Sumedho. Sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, one gets the impression that you shouldn't enjoy beauty. If you see a beautiful flower, you should contemplate its decay. Or if you see a beautiful woman, you should contemplate her as a rotting corpse. (laughs) That's a good reflection on Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta. But it can leave the impression that beauty is only to be reflected on in terms of these three characteristics rather than in terms of the experience of beauty. This is the joy of appreciative joy, being able to appreciate the beauty in the things around us. So this appreciation of nature, appreciation of the beauty of natural things, one source that we have a lot of access to here for joy. There's also a real joy in in virtue, in maintaining our conduct well. When we're careful with our sila in life, we live you know, through a few years of maintaining good sila, and as we look back, we find we don't have to have regrets about the actions that we've done. And because we don't have regret, or remorse, or guilt, the mind can really settle in meditation in a lovely way. We feel an inner, um, one level of an inner kind of purity from uh, that care with our, with our conduct. And the Buddha had a special word for this. He called it enjoying the bliss of blamelessness. And he said that of the other kinds of pleasures that one can have in lay life, enjoying um, a degree of self-sufficiency, a livelihood, and freedom from, from debt, he said those are not one-sixteenth the value of the bliss of blamelessness. Spoke of this very highly. So one may wonder, you know, to what extent can this be developed? So again, this was an interview with um, the Dalai Lama, and he was being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. And I just want to say how much I appreciate Oprah's work at bringing real spirituality to a very broad audience. I don't know of anyone else in this country who does it the way that she does it. So she was interviewing the Dalai Lama personally for an article in O magazine, and she started by asking him, have you ever had to forgive yourself for anything? The Dalai Lama replied, "Mm, small incidents like accidentally killing an insect. Killing an insect, Oprah said. Hmm, okay. The Dalai Lama continued, My attitude toward mosquitoes is not very favorable, (laughs) not very peaceful. Bed bugs also. And that's it? Oprah couldn't quite believe what she was hearing. In your lifetime, that's what you have to forgive yourself for? Small mistakes every day, maybe, the Dalai Lama said evenly. But major mistakes, it seems, no. No major mistakes, Oprah repeated mulling over the idea. She fell silent and looked out the window. There was awe in her voice when she finally continued, you have nothing in life that you have regrets about. That's a great life, to have no regrets. Regarding service to Tibet, the Dalai Lama said, service to Buddhism, service to humanity, 
I have done as much as I can. Regarding my own spiritual practice, when I share my experiences with more advanced meditators, even those who have spent years in the mountains practicing single-pointedness of mind, I don't lag too far behind. And I have to believe that part of the reason for the Dalai Lama's success in meditation is his carefulness with his conduct, that bliss of blamelessness. There's the joy in generosity. Carol talked about this the other night, and I could feel um, that joy as she described the um, work that she does in Burma every winter, being able to support nunneries, monasteries, schools for orphans, and so on. I also feel this um, joy and generosity when you all are serving Bhante his lunch every day. It's just a delight to watch the people line up and he goes through with great stillness and you all take such care in offering the food that he needs, the portions that he would enjoy. I just really appreciate the presence on both sides of that moment. Um, And I don't think I'm probably the only one who shed a little bit of a tear in watching that transaction happen. It's very touching for me sometimes. So um, you do get to see this a lot in Asia, particularly around uh, monastics. When I was going to practice in Burma that time that I told you about with Patmok Sayadaw, one of my students wanted to support my trip and support the monastery, and she gave me a few hundred dollars to take, uh, to give away while I was there in the best way that I could see fit. So I got to the monastery, I was still a lay person, and that one morning before I ordained as a monk, I went to see the steward, the lay steward of the monastery, who handles the money. And I said, I have uh, some money I'd like to offer to the monastery on behalf of uh, this student. And what I'd like to do, I decided, I'd like to pay for a lunch for her to sponsor for the entire monastery. So at this time in the monastery, there are 750 people practicing. There were 450 monks. There were about 150 nuns. A uh, hundred lay people were practicing there at the time. I said, I have a few hundred dollars. Would, would that cover a lunch for everyone? And the steward said, well, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but all the lunches are spoken for for the next three months. I was amazed because this is one of the poorest countries on the face of the earth. And yet, every every main meal for three months had already been donated by some Burmese people. So we, we arrived at that she would sponsor, her money would sponsor special breakfasts, breakfasts that would have especially good food for everyone in the monastery. And then every day I would come down to lunch and they would have a big whiteboard, which is a lot like our meal Donna board. And the whiteboard would say who was sponsoring the lunch that day. It would say it in Burmese and it would say it in English. So as I walked by, I could read where my lunch, where my meal was, was coming from that day. And generally it was more than one person. Often it would be a family or it looked like quite a lot of a village who would sponsor the lunch because it was a lot of people. And so they would often be sitting off to one side. They would come to the monastery wearing their nicest clothes 
And the whole family or clan or maybe village would kind of all sit together and watch the monks and the nuns and the lay people file through and be served from these huge pots, you know, until all the people had gotten their lunch. And what was so beautiful is the big smiles on the faces of the donors that day. They would sit off to one side and they would watch Paok Sayadaw being fed from their offering. They would watch the other senior monks and nuns be fed from their generosity. And it brought them so much joy. It was so clear on their faces. It was really a delight um, to see. In our own meditation practice, there's a joy of being with the truth, even if it's difficult. I hear this in interviews from people, that even when practice is working in a difficult place, there's a joy of learning how to be with it, of learning how to open to this new place in ourselves, this new place in our practice, even if it's a little bit difficult. There's, I would say, a joy of understanding what these states mean, how mindfulness helps to liberate them, and how the whole path unfolds, even based on the difficulties. Because I find when my mind touches into some of these core issues of personality, of character, and these may be things like, in my, in my case, fear, or for other people, vigilance, or rage. As the retreat goes on, we find that we can touch these places and the mind has the steadiness to be there with them. It may be for the first time in our life we can touch these deep feelings and the mind can stay steady in the middle of that and not need to escape either through fleeing the room or going off into fantasy or um, flights of papancha, but the mind can really stay and hold it. And that's the key to freeing ourselves, this contact with steadiness, with these difficult areas in our mind. And if, if you look closely, I'll bet you'll find a joy in that experience where we wouldn't expect to find it at all. This is from a poet named Michael Lunig. When the heart is cut or cracked or broken, do not clutch it. Let the wound lie open. Let the wind from the good old sea blow in to bathe the wound with salt and let it sting. Let a stray dog lick it. Let a bird lean in the hole and sing a simple song like a tiny bell and let it ring. So as we stay steady with our difficult facets of heart and mind, the steadying continues to deepen and we find that the experience starts to open into places of real peace and stillness. And this is the factor of concentration that's developing. One of the things that kept me coming back on meditation retreats is I would keep touching these levels of peace at what felt like more and more profound places in me. And I thought, wow, if this much peace is possible, if this much stillness is possible, 
what else might there be in this mind? And I wanted to come back and explore that because being there was so satisfying. You know, having a, having a period when the dukkha did not arise was so satisfying that I wanted to sort of plumb that depth. Finding that I could live without being assaulted by the hindrances of liking and disliking, of wanting and pushing away, was so freeing, so delicious. There's also a lot of joy in the practice of gratitude. I know Winnie mentioned this also, and I wanted to talk a little more about this quality of gratitude. Sometimes I think that there should be a fifth Brahma-vihara and that it should be gratitude. But I'm going to try and convince you that it actually belongs under one of the ones we already know. So gratitude, as I understand it, is about appreciating what's already in our own life, appreciating the blessings that are in our life. And I connect this with doing mudita practice for oneself. So some strains of Buddhist teaching say that we're not allowed to do mudita practice for ourselves, that that gets too self-centered, and that mudita is only valid for another person. But I don't see it that way, and I don't understand it that way, and I think there's a textual uh, reference for seeing it uh, the other way as well. For those of you who were here for the, um, the practice of loving-kindness for all beings that I led about a week ago, we did a little chant about abide, abiding, pervading the quarters with a mind imbued with the Brahma-viharas. So I'd like to read this chant a little bit on the subject of mudita, which is being translated by gladness. I will abide pervading one quarter with a mind imbued with gladness, likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. So above and below, around and everywhere, and to all as to myself, I will abide pervading the all-encompassing world, with a mind imbued with gladness, abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility and without ill will. This passage comes from uh, a sutta in uh, the Majjhima Nikaya. So it is the words of the Buddha. And as you can tell, we are pervading the world with mudita to all as to oneself. So very clearly, in this sutta passage, the Buddha is encouraging us to direct mudita to ourself as well as to all other sentient beings. So I encourage you to play with this. You can use the same phrase, may my happiness and good fortune continue, or if that seems a little striving, you could use uh, another phrase, something like, may I appreciate the blessings in my life. May I appreciate the blessings in my life. So gratitude is such a beautiful state of mind. Because we're appreciating what we have, we don't slip into desiring something else. And because we're appreciating what we have, we don't slide into aversion to what's here now. So it's a state that avoids both uh, desire and 
aversion. And this really, this came through really nicely in a story of one of our friends, wise practitioner, who was talking to her granddaughter on Christmas Day. Her granddaughter was like five or six years old at this time and was living in a different city. So our friend called her granddaughter and the granddaughter had gotten presents that day. And so our friend said, well, when you get uh, presents, do you feel thankful for what you have or does it make you want more? And feel the wisdom starting to slip in. And the little girl said, oh, Nana, I want more. And our friend said, that's too bad. And the little girl picked up on it and said, um, what do you mean? And our friend said, well, haven't you noticed that when you're thankful for what you have, you feel good? And when you're wanting more, it doesn't feel as good. And the little girl said, oh, Nana, you're right. <laughs> so this is kind of the magic of, of gratitude. All of us here have many things to be grateful for. I'm going to come back to this in a minute, but I want to tell a story about another friend of ours who was working in a refugee camp in Thailand. I guess this was in the 1990s. And refugees were coming into Thailand from Laos and Cambodia because those countries were still in a lot of turmoil and they could find some safety in, in Thailand. So he was working near the Thai border with these refugees and they had often come from very poor parts of the country, often living up in the hills without um, modern conveniences. And many of them had been given visas to move to the West. In fact, a lot of these people settled in, in California. I think Fresno has a lot of um, uh, Lao and Cambodian refugees. So they were in the refugee camps to prepare them for this transition to the West. So they were learning about things like dollar bills and quarters, and washing machines, and toasters, and bus timetables. All of these things that they didn't have in their, their lives in those countries. And so as a way of just kind of getting to know people and getting them to talk about their lives, one of the questions our friend would ask them in classrooms was, What's the most what are the most important things in life? So he told me there was this one teenage girl, a refugee. And when he asked her, what are the most important things in life? She answered, the most important things are fire, rice, and water. I think that kind of gives a flavor of what her life was like. In this country, we more or less take those things for granted or their equivalents. In our situations. I think most of us take those things for granted. Of course, many people in this country don't have ample supplies of heat or food or shelter either. But most of us have the opportunity when we go home to stay sheltered, to stay warm, to stay dry, and we can be really grateful for that. Many people in the world don't have that opportunity. We have ample food most of the time. You know, I appreciate being here on retreat. We have really good food, really good ample food a lot of the time. And I was just reflecting in, you know, the range of foods that we've eaten in this retreat, how many came from the Native Americans. I, Europeans may not be aware of this, 
But Native Americans provided through their agriculture many of the food staples that we eat in this country and now, of course, that are in, in Europe also. So some of them that we owe to the Native people are corn, maple syrup, squash, potatoes, sweet potatoes, pumpkins, beans, tomatoes, strawberries, peanuts, avocados, and sunflowers. All brought to us from Native Americans. So, we generally have access to these choices of foods, but many people don't. Many people around the world and people in this country don't. So we can feel grateful for this. All of us, in fact, are enjoying what the Tibetans call a precious human birth. And the precious human birth means that we have been born as a human being and have the chance to make our life meaningful. And in fact, all of you are making your lives meaningful. We're born as human beings. Our mind and bodies are in reasonably good shape. We're at a time when a Buddha has appeared in this world. We're at a place and a time when the Dharma is flourishing. When there are practitioners who are following the teachings, when we have heard and understood the teachings, and we have the interest and the time to follow and practice the teachings. This set of circumstances doesn't occur for a whole lot of people on this planet. And yet all of us have this opportunity. And it's a huge thing to be grateful for. Bottom line, when we think of things to be grateful for, we can always remember the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I've heard this in interviews a lot as we come to this part of the retreat when some people are leaving and reflecting back on their experience. A lot of gratitude for the triple gem, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. It's wonderful to practice and cultivate this state of gratitude. The Buddha said three persons are rare in this world. One is a Buddha, and another is a person who is grateful. It's good company to be in. One retreat I was sitting here, it was um, in the colder part of the three-month course. And I had arrived from California where the weather was sunny and relatively warm. And I came in, I think it was November, and the rain started and it started to get cold, you know, some frosty mornings. And I was developing some aversion to the weather. I went in for an interview with Joseph and he said, don't waste your time on that. That leads nowhere. So I thought, I better work with this. And so I, I started a gratitude list. And I just decided to write down every single thing I could think of in my life that I was grateful for. And then every morning when I got up, I would read through that list as a way to kind of set my tone for the day. It was very helpful because it just kept reminding me how many things I had to be thankful for. And it's a wonderful antidote to any kind of aversion to remind myself of that. One other kind of nice gratitude practice, I was um, teaching a group of senior students a few years ago in, in California, and two of them decided to start this practice where every night, just before they went to bed, they would send an email to the other telling them one thing they'd been grateful for that day. And so we called them gratitude buddies. And they had the commitment, just one thing, but every day. 
And so they just did that steadily. And they said it really changed their outlook on, on their life to realize they had something to appreciate every single day and then keeping that up as a practice and appreciating the other person's uh, gratefulness really made a difference. And then we talked about it in the senior students group and then a bunch more people started doing it. So it actually it spread for a while, this uh, gratitude buddies practice. So one of the things I often reflect on with gratitude is the presence in my life of the path of the Dharma. And I wonder, have, have you reflected ever or recently, what was your life like before you found a path, before you found this path? I know what my life was like. I felt kind of lost. I felt like I was just kind of bouncing around life, going up, going down, not understanding why, feeling at the mercy of the winds. I don't know what winds, but some winds. (laughs) I didn't have any ideas where happiness came from or why I was suffering. I felt lost and, and adrift. And then finding that there is a reliable path to happiness, to a stable kind of happiness, was like an amazing revelation to me. And I just knew I was willing to do anything it took to walk that path and find a stable kind of happiness in my life. And when I reflect back on how I got connected, you know, to this practice and to IMS, it seems like kind of a fluke. I was in a spiritual bookstore in California one day. I'd been doing a little meditation, um, but I saw a poster for a retreat with Joseph and Sharon and Jack that was happening in New Mexico. And I just said, I want to go to that. This was 1976. And that was my connection to them as teachers. And then I went to the retreat and learned about IMS. About six months later, I came here and did a a long period of retreat. And then I came on staff. That poster totally turned my life around. You know, I made a connection that I, I don't know how I would have made otherwise to what to me is the best force in life that I've ever found. So it seems kind of mysterious at times. How did I happen upon that poster that day? But then I also kind of feel like there was almost a sense of destiny about it. I don't know if you felt that about your path, but I just feel something was leading me to this place. I felt so ready. I know I've heard many of you say, when you first heard the teachings, you felt like you were coming home. And there's there's just some force that has guided us here. And I think about another uh, Native American saying, this is from the Chippewa Nation. Sometimes I go around pitying myself while all the time I'm being carried across the vast sky by great winds. There are these great winds carrying all of us. And as we keep adding our good intentions, moment after moment, these winds pick up force and they keep carrying us down this path, which is so wholesome, so completely wholesome. So then this um, this sutta, the Upanisa Sutta that describes the unfolding of the path to liberation in terms of joy, it goes a little bit like this. Um, 
It starts with suffering, which is where the first chain of dependent origination uh, ended. But then it goes on to a different track, and from suffering it moves into faith. This is a little bit jarring at first, but it's true, isn't it? Didn't you develop your faith by learning to work with your suffering? Understanding suffering is the avenue to faith, to believing in the practice. And then faith brings about a kind of gladness. Carol talked about this as the gladness or brightness in the mind when this quality of faith or sadha develops. And then this quality of joy leads into rapture, which is piti, which is this energizing, alert enjoyment of being in the moment. And then piti leads into, as it does in the seven factors, calm or tranquility. So the delight expresses itself in this settledness that we feel is calm. Then in the Upanisa Sutta, the next step is happiness, sukha. Following the experience of calm is this quality of happiness or sukha. So what's interesting to me about this, and then the, tr- the factors get more tranquilizing, concentration, insight, liberation, etc. What's interesting to me about this is that sukha, which I'll call happiness, is a deeper development than joy. Joy is more momentary, uplifting, beautiful, essential. We have so many avenues to get to it. But as joy rises, it needs to pass through tranquility to settle and steady itself before it lands into happiness. So happiness, or sukha, is kind of this quality of joy that's been matured, or ripened, or mellowed with calm. And because of that calm, it can settle in a more stable way into our being, into our hearts and minds. And then it kind of brings with it a real quality of contentment as the mind finds it can settle into itself without having to look outside for anything else. And this is that word santuti, contentment. And of it, the Buddha said, content, this is also from the Dhammapada, contentment is the greatest wealth. The greatest wealth. So this kind of happiness which has some stability to it, brings a real sense of satisfaction. And as it settles, we get the feeling that, yeah, sure, it's impermanent to some extent. It does come and go. But we start to trust that life can throw us curves and we'll still go up and down, but we can settle back into this kind of contented happiness. It forms more or less a reliable baseline for us, even though we're bounced around by the comings and goings of life. And if we have that, we have some basic confidence in being able to work with life, in being able to work with our heart and mind, being able to work with others, being able to work with the world at large. And I love this poem from Rumi. You know, when Rumi says you, he usually means the divine, the way he understands that. But this is kind of the spirit for me of when this deep happiness is present. Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. If you do not come, these do not matter. 
If you do come, these do not matter. This is also a poem to this happiness. If happiness doesn't come, these other things don't matter. And if happiness does come, these other things don't matter either. This is that stable foundation. So, of course, the path doesn't stop at this happiness, but it continues to evolve. One of the teachers whom I uh, respect deeply put it this way. He said, the main cause of freedom is happiness. The main cause of freedom is happiness. So it is this great supportive condition for the final fruition of the path. And as the Buddha said in the simile of the heartwood, the goal of our practice is not just sila. It's not just gain or a good reputation. It's not just concentration or the well-being that that brings about, happiness being a part of that. And it's not just insight. But he said, it is the unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. The unshakable deliverance of mind. Let's just sit for a minute together. Come to the orchard in spring. There is light and wine and sweethearts in the pomegranate flowers. If you do not come, these do not matter. If you do come, these do not matter. <clears throat> 